Well, Brondon, clearly one major talking point in the game. Everybody been asking for it. We've got VAR. And is there yet more drama to come here? I'm obviously really, really happy with VAR. Ask us to the VAR people, please. Don't ask to me. For me, it's very clear. VAR is for say, is good or is not good. The VAR brings the truth to the game and everybody accepts it. Welcome to the VAR Booth Podcast. I'm your host, Coach H, and today's episode, we're talking youth soccer, the elite level. I have two guests with me, uh, both who coach uh, for clubs that uh, play in, in this elite level. Uh, my first guest is Fabrice Goutra. Uh, he is, um, he, he, I believe, Fabrice, you are the director, if I'm mistaken, of the uh, Girls Academy at Chicago FC United, correct? That is correct, yes. Yes, um, and he's been coaching in the academy for a while. Uh, Fabrice, how are you doing? How's everything? How's the, how's the, the girls doing during this time? Uh, yeah, thanks for having me, Hervé. Look, it's, uh, it's been good. Obviously, the, the past week and a half, 10 days have been, have been crazy, but actually I think it's going to be great for youth soccer moving forward. In terms of our girls, you know, I feel like we're busier than ever, um, and I think we're learning more than we ever have in terms of how to learn the whole at-home training platform and, and everything that entails. So all good here, busy, and uh, excited for the future. Awesome. Sounds good. And then my second guest um, is Santiago Cabrera uh, out of New Jersey. Coach Santiago, how are you? H, thanks for having me. Uh, definitely a challenging period with uh, our players at Cedar Stars. Uh, but uh, through, through a lot of collaboration with the families and our staff uh, and our ownership, we've, uh, you know, been able to, as Fabrice said, kind of work through these challenges and you end up learning a ton of things. Yeah, definitely. I can, I can concur with that. All right, gentlemen. So today um, we, we, I have these two guests on uh, because they both worked in the formerly known DA uh, system. Um, and, you know, I kind of wanted to get their, their opinions on the elimination of, uh, of the DA program by USSF. Uh, but before we get into uh, just talking about, you know, sort of like the logistics and the, and the politics about that, um, I just wanted to start from the beginning in terms of coaching at that level. Uh, Fabrice, I'll start with you. Just give us a brief uh, background on how you got to be coaching at the DA level. Yeah, good question. So I, uh, my wife and I got married in November 2000 and. Uh, 18. And right after that, we went to Lyon. She played and I coached there. So I was, we were there for six months, ended up coming back. Um, she ended up, you know, playing for, for the Red Star. So I was back in Chicago. So I was looking kind of for work. Uh, there was an option for me to potentially be a volunteer assistant at, at UVA. So I was on my way to do that. I did a, a camp at Northwestern with Mike and then a few other of the, uh, division one coaches there, uh, DePaul and Loyola and, uh, one of the coaches there, Aaron, she was also overseeing the FC United, just girls, um, just overall club. And so anyways, we, we connected and then she kind of put me in touch with, with, you know, one of the guys sporting directors at, at FC United Bear. And, uh, it was through that connection, through that camp, right. I didn't know what was going to happen that, um, it just made sense from, uh, obviously being close to home and not having to uh, live far away or a different state for my wife. It just, it just made a lot of sense. And then plus, obviously the, the opportunity to coach at this level was, was exciting, uh, to say the least. 
Yeah, definitely. And I think a lot of people in the Chicago area, myself coming from the Chicago area, know of you and know of the work that you've been doing uh, with uh, Chicago FC United. Um, Santiago, you you coach for Cedar Stars, probably one of the bigger, bigger clubs around the Northeast. Uh, how did you get involved in coaching at that level? Uh, so I started uh, about eight years ago uh, with uh, Red Bulls training programs, New York Red Bulls training programs. Uh, locally, uh, where I live in Hoboken, uh, I just gotten done with playing in college, and uh, you know, just wanting to continue being involved in the game. Initially, I didn't think that it was going to be something that uh, was sustainable as a as a full time occupation, but uh, I really uh, just developed a, a huge love for for being involved with uh, young players, and. Uh, that took me to, you know, just push myself in, in terms of making it a full-time occupation uh, and just kind of found that vocation. Uh, and then, uh, you know, looking for opportunities to, to grow. Uh, this opportunity presented itself at Cedar Stars uh, to be involved in the DA as an apprentice coach. Uh, and uh, I made the move to Cedar Stars four years ago. Uh, and uh, this upcoming season was was uh, is the first season that I'm, I'm going to be involved with uh, the the U13 age group. So uh, you know, I never coached uh, 11 v 11 in the DA. Uh, this was going to be my first uh, my first season, but obviously now with with uh, the MLS league, I think it's going to be very similar uh, in terms of what's what's happening on the boy side uh, and. Uh, but definitely, I, you know, being around the program with has been one of the most successful programs in the, you know, non MLS, uh, in terms of, you know, in the, in the Northeast, uh, just learning from guys like Anthony Nixon and Lee Leonard, uh, just learned a lot of, a lot of things. And, uh, you know, then I got to work with a U 12s, uh, which is a really competitive age group in this area. We have, you know, Philadelphia Union, Red Bulls, New York City FC, right on our doorstep within within 45 minutes. Uh, you know, Philadelphia is an hour away, so uh, it's it's uh, it's been an amazing experience. And uh, you know, I think the, the changes that are happening now are, are only making things uh, you know even more competitive, which is which is what we want. Yeah, definitely. I was uh, I was having a conversation with one of the academy coaches out of the out of the NYCFC, and basically his his concern was, um, you know, what 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 you know whatever's going to happen with the future or once uh, once the USSF announced that they will eliminate the DA is the fact that, you know, they weren't going to have as much as competition uh, around them, and they wouldn't have to travel far for competition, which makes it a little bit difficult. But we'll we'll sort of we'll get into that and and sort of like the level of comp- competition at that level in the youth but um the reason why i ask you guys that question is because uh, a lot of the times when you when you go to conferences uh or you, you know you do your coaching badges somewhere and um you know there's some coaches obviously you know who coach with the da and a lot of most other coaches don't coach uh, you know at that da level there seems to be kind of like this this uh you know one of the goals for a lot of coaches is to, is to coach at that level um uh, for me just talk about in terms of uh you know I think a lot of coaches, uh, you know, they'll watch DA teams and think, oh, no, I can I can easily be coaching at that level. But they don't really understand uh, the amount of work it goes in to coach uh, a DA level level team. Just go go into a little bit like how does 
how do you guys, you know, create programs and how do you guys set up programs and how to, how much work does coaches need to do in order just to coach a U14 girl at that level? Yeah, good question. So I, I do know the, the DA had this double pass system, which was kind of this evaluation of how your academy is doing. I know our boys side did it and I think they were about to roll it on the girls DA. So uh, I just preface that because I, I do think like for us, there was no one really above it. We we had Steve uh, Morris as the DA director. I actually was the girls assistant director. So he kind of came in with the curriculum and, and everything. But at the end of the day, it was very much kind of self-run. You could make it as great or as poor as you wanted to. I know mm-hmm. if you're maybe in MLS settings, it's you kind of have to follow what is being done and said. So I just kind of want to preface that. So at the end of the day, uh, we had a lot of freedom to um, kind of do things, but how we structured the week was depending if we had one or two games, you know, if we had one game, Monday would be very much your technical. So it'd be light physically, but, uh, maybe you're looking at slightly tighter spaces, but a lot of unopposed technical work to just, uh, hone those. And then Tuesday, still keeping it tighter spaces where physically they're not being challenged that much. And then obviously Wednesday and Thursday would be kind of bigger spaces, uh, whatever your theme was for that week. So, uh, how we did it this year, you know, our, uh, the curriculum, pretty much it was uh, two offensive, one defensive, and it just rotated between each third of the field. Uh, and then you, we also had the freedom to uh, to work in the transition moments in wh- whichever phase we were working on. So that's more globally. I can get more into detail, but that's kind of the, the global piece of how we how we did things. And then, and then the tension that you guys gave the players off the field, how did that look like? Yeah, good question. Um, so we had player first where uh, we had this, you know, our, our players had this success log. So they would talk about their games and how they how they did uh, that weekend. So three positives, one thing they can improve on, and then one desired action uh, they needed to do to bring about the improvement. So that was just more of like a end of the week type thing. Um, and, and the player first was just the communication platform that we had. So in terms of anything extra, because we did train four days a week, so there was never any necessarily like extra work that you had to do. Uh, sometimes we would say, Hey, uh, make sure you look at your film. So Tuesdays, cause we were at Falcon, we had, um, we, we had an indoor, um, like classroom setting. So we would do film there. So I'd be like, Hey, uh, look at the first half of this game or look at these clips and be ready to talk about it. Right. And then, so I would just, you know, cold call people and, and we would connect or sometimes small groups of positions would get together. And I would say, okay, yeah. Uh, back line, you know, uh, talk about how you did in the build out. Okay. Hey, midfielders, uh, talk about your midfield rotation or talk about how you were able to get on the ball. Um, and then the attackers like, Hey, h- how were your off the ball movements, you know, in this game? Like what, what kind of runs did you make those types of things? So, um, yeah, th- those were kind of the things that, that we did. Um, but it wasn't, you know, so much where it was overwhelming based off everything else they have going on. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, Santiago, so you know, obviously, as you know, Cedar Stars having so many, so many sites uh, across uh, you know the New Jersey uh, area. There's a lot of teams, uh, and you coaching sort of the younger ones that are going into these into these elite teams. Talk about some you know some of the differences and of expectations between um, you know a player who is just plays for a regular Cedar Stars team and then a player who's playing on one of your teams. Yeah, uh, so I think the expectation uh, from from us uh, is to provide every single player that we have with 
with the opportunity to to you know showcase their their talents and their abilities uh, and to develop those abilities you know regardless of where they they are within you know the competitive spectrum and uh, you know obviously there's as you get uh, towards a more elite level uh, you're provided with opportunities that you earn throughout the process uh, we but certainly uh, the expectation from from us uh, is to see the players set their own expectations and the way we do that is by driving competition and, and making rosters dynamic throughout the year so that if a player is really excelling within within a group uh, right away we're moving them to another team where they're going to be more challenged uh, obviously there's there's a, a lot of considerations that that go into this uh, all the way from you know is the player ready in all aspects to to move to the next level uh, in terms of, you know, psychologically, primarily, and then obviously technically, tactically, and physically, they have to be up for it. Uh, yeah. But uh, the expectation is really driven by by the players, and uh, it just creates a culture of accountability, which, which at the elite level, it's all about accountability. So that's kind of what we, we strive to do. Yeah. All right. So um, again, just giving people an uh, an idea uh, of how uh, you know what it takes over there, and I understand there's also a lot of traveling at that level as well. And you know, you a lot of the kids that are playing, obviously, that played in the DA level, weren't able to play any other sports because it's more year round, etc., etc., etc. So there was a difference between the between the two, and I think a lot of a lot of people that don't coach at that level don't quite understand that yet. But um, so let's let's get into you know the decision made by the USSF to eliminate the DA. But uh, my question uh, to you and Fabrice, I'll start with you first. Uh, give us some of the things that you actually liked about uh, the the previous DA system. Yeah, look, I think the the overall desire to raise the game with the standards that they had in place, I think we're good um, and. You know, overall, whether we agreed with the rules or the standards or whatever they were, uh, they were there and they were enforced, right? So um, I personally thought all those were good. I'm not necessarily saying I agreed with every rule and every standard, but I think overall at the heart of it, it was to elevate the game. And and that's something I think we could all yeah. uh, agree on. So, yeah. Yeah, Santiago, do you, do you agree with that? Do you think that... Uh... The model that they used that they rolled out was was the correct one. I mean, I think definitely uh, centralizing uh, a league on a national level uh, helps identify what we really have across the country. So, in that sense, I think U.S. Soccer did an amazing job in, in rolling it out. And you know, I believe it was two thousand seven. Uh, I was actually U fifteen when it first U uh, fourteen when it first. Uh, was rolled out uh, and it was uh, as a player it was inspiring to to have something to to re obviously there was an ODP system but it wasn't as extensive and as you know uh, clear what you were kind of aiming for and and the main thing with the ODP system was that there wasn't a full time team that you could be on to to uh, you know, work year round on, level, on something yeah. that you wanted to work towards. So I think, you know, there were huge, huge steps made. Uh, and, uh, 
you know, in terms of just, just building on what Fabrice is saying there, in terms of the standards, I mean, I think that's the most important part, uh, particularly the, the level of coaching education. I think you look at across the world, you know, leading powers of soccer across the world, Germany, England, uh, you know, Spain, uh, countries that are similar to us in terms of, you know, uh, socioeconomically similar to us. Uh, those are countries that are producing players uh, by having coaches all the way at the grassroots level that are that are fully prepared to to develop uh, players, uh, and uh, that way you don't miss any players. You know, so uh, I think you know the the DA was definitely a huge step in the right direction. So when so when they announced uh, Santiago, when they announced that they were you know, and I, I mean obviously we all saw that there was you know started as a rumor first. Uh, and then a couple of publications wrote articles about it and said in the next couple of you know days or weeks, uh, you know th that's what they were going to do. But when they when it happened, were you were you shocked by the decision? Um, initially, obviously, I thought that it's tough to when you're when you're presented with with a decision and you're not really sure what's coming next. I think that's always tough, you know. Uh, there's always doubts and you know for me uh, I have a vocation to do this and nothing really changes for me you know we're developing soccer players uh, you, you know you hope that you have a standard to aspire to and that's kind of what the DA provided uh, but uh, nothing really changes for me personally but I think where there was a little bit of panic was more with the players where they're not really sure what's going to happen and you know kind of dealing with with that uh, was the most challenging part uh, but think now that we can kind of digest it and see how things uh, unfold, I think there was a lot of thought uh, put behind this decision. You know, and it was something that had been coming for a while from U.S. soccer, and there was a lot of talk, you know, in the past, yeah, basically two and a half years of of uh, potentially this occurring, where you yeah, know, moving moving away from from the federation controlling the league, but. Uh, you know, I think we're headed in the right direction once again. So, yeah, and and I mean, Fabrice, you being a director, obviously, you know, it kind of fall on your you know shoulders in a way, and kind of your responsibility on how you're going to now you know, sort of guide, uh, the you know the group of uh, elite girls that you have at your club. Um, I'm sure you you weren't shocked once it happened because you had an idea, but so just walk walk us back, you know, maybe a month or two before. They made the decision. What were you thinking in, in anticipation that this might happen? Yeah, so I kind of caught wind of it, um, you know, from a pretty good source about two months prior. And I was like, hmm, okay, I'll look into a little bit. You know, none of the, the people employed by U.S. soccer in terms of like the academy really had any, any wind of it or anything. So I just I, I kind of put it in the back of my mind. And then obviously there was a couple of tweets. I think it was like the week before, like Thursday. And I was like, hmm, okay, this is interesting, right? So um, what, what we did as a conference, actually, we, we kind of got together a couple days before the actual announcement, which was on Wednesday. And we're like, hey, you know, we've been hearing this. Let's just kind of get together and, and kind of share what we know and, and, and kind of go from there. So as the days progressed, so then it was like uh, a day before and we were like, okay, this really looks imminent. So what are we going to do? So we actually... Um, all agreed unanimously is like, Hey, we have a really competitive conference. Why don't we just get together and just agree that we're going to just stick together, whatever we decide to do. 
Okay. Right. Um, and then, so we had actually a letter ready, uh, with all of our logos and names on it to send to our families and just like, look. And so we literally, I mean, I had it ready. So as soon as this announcement, you know, and obviously the more information you get that trickles, it was just, it was inevitable. So as that happens, we literally sent something out to our families, like I think 10 minutes after the announcement and just said, Hey, um, we understand what's going on. Just let you know, like we're still showing solidarity. We're going to, we're going to look through all the platforms. Um, but right. Our program doesn't change. And I think that was the biggest thing for us. So we sent that out. And then I believe, I think it was two days or one, no, it was a day later, actually a day later, I had a meeting with all the families and I just stressed how our program does not change who we are. And that's why I said a little bit, I preface where there was no one really over my back to say, Oh, what are you doing every day? What are you doing? Like, I think kind of back to Santiago, like we should, if we're coaching at this level, you shouldn't have anyone behind you to push you, right? You should be, you should be really motivated to be the best you can be. We all make mistakes. Yes. And no. Uh, and that's where I think, that's why I think it's so important for, for just leaders of clubs to not rely on your platform, but literally to rely on what kind of program you are creating for your families, for your players and pushing them and what kind of environment you're creating from a holistic development, because, uh, that at the end of the day will allow you to not only retain your membership, but also, uh, continue growing in an elite level. So that was, that was the big message the day after the announcement which was yeah. our program, our program, our program, our program. And we showed, and, and, you know, the at-home training program was the same thing. So when, when the whole COVID hit on Thursday, on Sunday yeah. night, they had an entire, uh, and I'm more than happy, but an entire week of technical training, Zoom live sessions, classroom work. Like, so it's just like, uh, you know, I, I think we have to be ready and adaptable, but I, I really think the main message to all of our families was, the program. And I can get into what we preach on, on the platform piece, but yeah, that, that's been, that's been the big thing of what we harped on with our families. Yeah, definitely. And we, we kind of saw once, you know, all the clubs all announced that you guys were into the girls Academy. It it happened pretty fast. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, you know, that was a testament to the fact that it does seem like as if you guys really were already prepared for something like this to happen. But, um, just this, this, Think about it holistically in terms of just soccer in the U.S., um, especially especially on the girls' side, because we know that you know the girls are not treated the same as the boys. Um, don't you don't you think that you know the the U.S. Federation should have their hands in the gro- you know the grassroots program and the fact that now that they, they don't have the DA uh, it seems like as if they don't have their hand in it anymore. What do you think, Fabrice? Yeah, look, it's, it's, people would say, I'll just speak to what's happening right now, at least with our clubs and our conference. So I think back to the DA, I think we all love the standards, but what we, what, at least for us, the the message we preach is same standards, more autonomy. We didn't have control over things that are really important when you run a club, right? So from scheduling, right? So we, I'll give you an example. We had four trips to Detroit, Michigan this year, when there was only two opponents, why couldn't we maybe play them? Obviously we only had eight teams, but now that we have 12, we're only going there once and we're going to play Saturday and Sunday and come back. So that's just mindful of our families and the travel and the cost and the expenses. Same thing with the, with the events, because the substitution rules were so, I would say rigid and they weren't, you weren't allowed to, uh, kind of come in and out. That means the players needed more time to rest, which makes sense. But now with if, if we in, in implement the new substitution rules, you can potentially play 
three days and three games. I understand from a development standpoint, it's 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 maybe not conducive. But at the end of the day, we're also in the U.S. and we also have to be mindful of you know these national events that these players go to and 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 all of those things, right? And, and understanding our demographics. So um, so for us, I, I'll just say I, I I I really think this is a blessing in disguise. Despite all perception, I really do think it's a blessing in disguise because we at the end of the day are making the decisions that are best for for our families and our players. So. Um, so yeah, I mean, in terms of you look at other countries where the federation, uh, oversees, you know, everything to, to an extent, or at least the pro clubs are overseeing a lot of that. Uh, I feel in the U S it's almost impossible because there is this very much free market. You're able to start businesses. You're able to do so many different things. So nothing is ever preventing anyone from kind of going and running with it. So I think it'll be very hard for it to all kind of come together. I think it's going to take a lot of people, you know, I would love like, to be perfectly honest, like a Chicago cup, like, let's just go out. Let's just take the best teams in Chicago. Let's all play each other. Do I think it's going to happen? Hmm, I don't know. I don't know. Um, but anyways, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. So Santiago on the, on the boys side, I feel like, you know, and then I'm, I'm assuming, I don't know this for a fact, but I'm assuming that the MLS obviously knew that this was going to happen. And they were, you know, they already had everything in place, and they were very quick as well to say that no, we are gonna basically take over, uh, you know, by creating this league for for the youth players. So there was a little bit more calmness um, on the boys' side, but sort of, what are your expectations, especially being uh, a coach of a club that is not an MLS uh, sort of like first team club? What are your expectations for this league? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's the that's the you know hot topic right now. What exactly is that league going to look like? Uh, I think just taking a step back in terms of what you're saying with the MLS not being prepared or being prepared for this, I don't know that anyone was really prepared for this. You know, I think I mean maybe Fabrice, you can jump in here a little bit, but uh, even for you, you know, like you had maybe a couple of days to prepare something. It's not really enough time to, to be prepared. Obviously. Like you said, uh, you know, nothing really changes. You know, in these tough times, we kind of find out who we are and and what we're about. You know, the the DA platform. I think if it if it was kind of carrying the weight of the club, the the DA badge, then the team probably didn't belong in the DA. You know, so. Uh, but in terms of you know what what the league is looking like now, uh, there's been a lot of conversations. Uh, between uh, MLS and uh, you know the non-MLS former DA clubs, yeah, and I think that it's it's a it's a tough you know uh, cookie to crack because you don't have uh, the same needs in every single club across the country, and their right. demographics are so different from you know uh, Fabrice, you're in, in the Chicago area, and that area uh, has its particular. Uh, you know, uh, challenges, you, know, you don't have, uh, you have a hugely densely populated area. And I think that that kind of talks to, to what you have uh, in mind there with a, like a Chicago competition, Chicago cup. Uh, if you mm-hmm. have that densely of, of, uh, of an area that's that densely populated, surely you have to take advantage, you know, like we, obviously we see in, in huge cities all around the world where soccer is the preeminent sport where, you know, in London, there might be, 20 professional teams, you know, and that means that 
kids don't need to travel as far. And it means that the game is now more accessible to a greater number of families and we're going to get more soccer players. So I think that that's something that we're learning right now in terms of can we maximize the, the you know, the contact that we have on a more local basis to make the game more accessible. But then uh, obviously once you get to U15, I think that that's kind of what we're looking at for 13s, 14s. Uh, there's there's you know MLS clubs that are wanting to go away from those age groups, uh, and that have already done it. Uh, you know, like like in Seattle where they don't have 13s, 14s. So, uh, and there's there's a lot of reasons for that. But you know, on the on the other side, uh, when the surrounding clubs to those MLS clubs, uh, you know, are producing players, and then once they get to 15, you know, then if with with say in, in the Seattle area, with those clubs not being able to retain their players at U15 because they're you know going towards the MLS clubs, there's a bit of a conflict there in terms of yeah. what is the goal really? What are we developing these kids for? If we're then gonna ship them off to the MLS club with nothing in in return. So yeah. that's that's also something that's being talked about within the MLS uh, conversations. I don't think that it's something that's what's going to occur very quickly. I think that it's going to take time to develop. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the idea of, of uh, compensation for players, but it's something that's in place all over the world. So I think we're only a soccer baby as a country. There's a there's a lot of things that we have to you know grow and learn and, and work out. Uh, yeah, but definitely. it's inevitable that we that we go towards that, you know, so, and then going into the 15s and, and 17s really, because the players that are at the highest level are not playing 19s in the DA, right? The, the guys that are the 19s is, was more of a platform for kids that are going then to, to go into college. But uh, at the 15s and 17s, I think what they're looking to do is create a, you know, a, a national competition where, where there is obviously more travel involved, but for the for the most elite players, it's a good investment to, as a country uh, to to make that investment. Yeah, definitely. The, so primarily, the reason why I asked that question, Santiago, is because um, I think sort of like subconsciously, you know, me speaking to a couple of academy coaches, you know, being MLS teams and non MLS teams, there's there's a, I was, I wouldn't say fear, but there's, there might be, there's a little bit maybe of a concern that this league that the MLS is creating might, uh, sort of, in a way, prefer MLS clubs over non MLS clubs. Like it might, it might be a little bit better for the MLS clubs in terms of just, you know, the cost and, and, you know, and the fact that MLS clubs could bear the cost as opposed to non MLS clubs who might not be able to bear the the cost of, of of the league. So what do you do do you are you a little bit in fear of that or you think that that's a possibility to happen? I mean I think I think uh the MLS is a private uh business and just like the Premier League, just like La Liga, uh just like any top division all over the world. Uh and those leagues run their they're, they're, uh, the youth leagues of those countries. Uh, it's not run by the federations. So obviously there has to be a uh, close relationship between MLS and U.S. soccer in terms of governing this league. But more so, I think 
it's only it's only so much that the MLS clubs can do. And when we're talking about working with the the highest levels uh, at 15s and 17s, there's a handful of clubs out there, and you know, like a Cedar Stars, where at the top we have USL uh, two, and you know, the there's a big investment with trying to get kids through and giving them opportunities to turn pro with our with our partners in Europe, and we have a you know, connection with. Uh, with FC Ku, which is in Denmark, uh, and we've already signed uh, players to to uh, to professional contracts and and to you know move them on to those partners. Uh, so there will be a handful of clubs that have those sort of situations that are non MLS, but for the majority of the clubs, you're going to have uh, better resources for those 15s and 17s at MLS clubs. Now at to, in order to get players there that are prepared to, you know, win the next World Cup, then you have there's a huge amount of work to be done outside of those MLS clubs. So I think it would only be, you know, sensible for the MLS to make sure that they're building the relationships between those clubs. And I think the only thing that really materializes relationships is business agreements. It's not about, uh, you know sitting down at a table and, and having a cup of coffee with somebody, that's great, you know, and that's that can build a personal relationship. But for these relationships to really work, have, there has to be business interest tied. So I think a huge, huge piece of it yeah. is is having uh, the compensation involved somewhere as, as a piece where yeah. now we're all working for the same team. You know, now there's no disparity between I can I can form a player and it doesn't hurt me for that player to move on to another club if, if it's a better opportunity, you know. But when right. when moving a player on can then hurt the business interests of, of clubs, and we see that all over the country, you know. Yeah. Uh, that's where we're not working in the same direction. So I think MLS could could you know has a huge opportunity right now in terms of creating a platform that that can you know completely change the game here. Uh, and work through these these problems that we have in in identifying and then and then developing the the top talents that we have in this country. Uh, and I think I, I think that you know they're they're dealing with it really sensibly. They're they're working with the clubs. They're they're getting people's opinions. Uh, so I my hopes are high in terms of this something good coming out of this. Yeah, definitely. I mean, every single time there is a, there is a problem is also uh, an opportunity for for progression and growth. So that's you know I think we all we all are excited, and I know a lot of players playing at that level are excited as well. Um, so Fabrice, this you know this talk to us about this girls' academy league. First of all, it seems like as if all the all the participants, you guys are obviously in agreement, uh, um, and you guys have a good relationship. Um, how is it? How is it going to be controlled? For instance, like we're. Uh, are the rules still going to be the same as the DA rules? In the, you know, as just as an example, um, are the players um, going to be still playing year round? Will they be able to play other sports or only just uh, for the for the club? Just talk through us to uh, you know, sort of what have you guys decided uh, in terms of this league? Yeah. So what I really like about this league is it's giving a lot of freedom to the conference in general. So obviously the, the league has stated that, hey, you can go play high school. Uh, there's going to be change in substitution rule. Obviously, 
Um, but we as a conference, we just we looked at our market, and obviously you have eight returning DA clubs. So the eight already were in agreement to do 10 months, right? So we tossed around the idea. We actually have already started building out the schedule. And uh, we looked at it, and at least for us at FC United, and everyone talks about, oh, the North Shore, it's impossible. You know, everyone wants to play high school. And I actually, I actually disagree. Like, if a girl wants to play high school, that's fine. You know, there, yeah. there's a different platform or there's a different environment. But what I don't understand, it's always like, oh, well, what if I want to play high school? I was like, well, what if 70% of the girls don't want to play high school? What if 70% right. of the girls want a competitive environment and want to get better and want to improve? And and so for me, it's like, I don't think it's fair to be like, okay, well, we're just going to all say everyone goes to high school where competitive players want to be in a competitive environment for, you know, a whole 10 months. So for us as a conference, we actually... We looked at we looked at it. We we played with different models because you have some states that have high school in the fall and then high school in the spring. The also other thing is is you know the state of Illinois, Minnesota, Wisconsin, uh, Michigan, all of those states, Indiana, uh, yeah, Ohio, and all of those states, the high school association does not allow you to play any club soccer while you're in high school, or else your high school team forfeits. So I know there's different parts of the region where that's not the case. So I know in certain parts of the region, they're going to say, hey, we'll do 10 months and we'll just manage our high school environment. So what I do like is it's not a hard like black and white, like you can't or you can. It's more like, hey, conferences, you you decide what you want. So we actually, as a conference, right. all 12 teams have agreed. You're going to feel the fall and spring sport. We'll help work with you and and this and that. But at the end of the day, uh, it's it's important that we have a 10-month season for for the development of our players and also for us from a college recruiting standpoint. I mean, spring is huge for college recruiting. So right. that's yeah. fine if you want to go play high school, but you're also, especially with COVID, where they missed out on all this spring, that, that's on you. That's on you. So um, so yeah, that, that's kind of how we're managing it. And how we, how we told our families was very easy. It's like the reason we're, we can't sit here and say we want to develop youth national team players and not have a 10-month environment. I'm sorry. Like right. I just... I have yeah. a hard time justifying that. Uh, yeah. if, if you want to, if you have dreams to go to ACC, Big Ten, uh, Pac-12 schools, and we don't have a, a ten-month environment, again, I I'm not saying that players who play high school can't. You know, like, I'm not saying that, but at least for us and what's in our control, I'm like, what's going to help that or or progress that uh, as much as possible? So for us, for us, it was pretty easy, and that's that's kind of what we said, and we said, hey, families, this is a ten-month program, and and it is what it is. So. Um, yeah, no, definitely. And so, and then, uh, sort of, what have what has become the criteria now to enter to enter this league? So you said uh, eight eight returning DA programs, and there's twelve. So that means there's there's four new clubs that weren't previously DA. Um, Correct. In the league now. So how did they how did they qualify for this league? So one of our criteria, and we're actually reviewing all of it um, as we speak. But when we kind of got together, we created a standards document. So we created. So I'll give you an example. I think filming in the league could be optional for regular season games. We as a conference are like, no, we want every game to be filmed. You know, so like we've we've agreed to some of those things. So um, with 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 regard to the criteria of the teams, uh, there, there's a couple of things. First and foremost is the com- how competitive you are in your market. So three out of the four clubs have won three out of the five state cups in those respective age groups. So you look at Wave. Wave is hands down the best team in Wisconsin, period. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't care what, what you say, what anyone says. Like, that's, that's not even a question. So yeah. we're like, hey, and they were a partner club for us. Um, so it could have been easy for us. Hey, let's just keep you as a partner club, kind of borrow players. But we're like, no, we want to play against the best. So that was, for us, we're like, all right, let's, 
let's let's go let's let's bring you on so that was one uh Beadling, same thing right they they had been trying to get into ECNL I don't think that that was possible because I know there's another Pittsburgh club there but for them it's uh uh, that was the same thing. They won three out of five state cups. I think four of them were in the top flight of of MRL. So uh, yeah. for that, that was easy, right? Indy Premier again, three out of five state cups. So look, that was what we did. You know, Minnesota they they had one, um, and they had a couple teams in MRL, but we also looked at geography. So we looked at, hey, we already have a Minnesota team. Why not also add a travel partner? So we looked at that. We still have, I mean, probably have five to ten more applications that have come in that have expressed interest uh but for us as as a conference we're yeah uh i'm not saying we're going to stop at 12 we're still looking at different options but we just wanted kind of this first year hey let's just pick let's just bring in you know the top clubs in this region and and let's go for it so that was kind of our our thought process definitely and um and um so i mean and you can for you can disagree with me i i feel like uh in santiago as well so the differences between um, you know boys and girls now becoming uh, pro players. I feel like uh, you know on, on the boys side, um, uh, the we still have certain players that are becoming pros by getting drafted. Uh, like a friend of mine, Patrick Segrist, uh, he got drafted into the Rebels, not playing with the Rebels. Um, but there's a lot of MLS teams that are even you know throwing away their 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 sort of their draft picks. But I feel like on the girl side, and again, guys, you can agree or disagree. Uh, you know, going through going to a good college program and then coming out of that good college program prepared to go being drafted into into uh, one of the teams is still pretty uh, prominent. For um, me, talk about sort of like how much does it weigh uh, if if one of your players is going to college and going into uh, a professional team, or are they able to? play for a club uh, like FC United uh, and get, you know, sort of like get looked at from there and then maybe maybe not even uh, skipping college? Or is there a rule where they have to play at least a year of college before they can go pro? Yeah, good question. I, I'm, I'm not sure on the, if there's a rule. I don't think there is. But the thing is, is, so it's great that the you know, the women professional game keeps getting, you know, bigger and better. And obviously, you know, we have the, the best team in the world on, on the national stage. And I would say even the, the domestic league, I mean, the NWSL is hands down um, the most competitive league in, in the world. Uh, yeah. With that said, um, the reality is, is the salaries are, are they're, they're decent. If you're a, if you're a national team player, you're making, you know, very good money, but if you're not, and you're, let's say a rookie out of, out of college and, and oh, yeah. you're, you're probably not making much. So I think there's a reality because if you look at, you know, these girls going to Ivy leagues or getting great degrees from big 10 school, ACC schools, the reality is they can make significantly more money after college. Um, and obviously get an education that's worth hundreds of thousands of dollars, as opposed right. to jeopardizing that to then go, uh, potentially play professional. Now I know in Europe there's more money. So I think they're, there's that, but until there's a lot more, um, I guess, money invested into the women's game, I, I, I just, with, with, especially with how U.S. is structured, I mean, the reality is girls grow up, you know, yeah, a lot of them grow up to play, you know, professionally, but a lot of them also grow up to play collegially. Like that's, yeah, I want to play, you know, at this top division one score, this one, you know? So um, I, I think until that, that changes on the boys side, it just makes sense, right? There's always, I, I think what I love, I love what I'm seeing right now with these, 
these, uh, you know, especially you see it on the MLS academies where they're able to play USL games without their eligibility being um, kind of at um, at risk, right? They're, right. they're able yeah. to kind of, and that, I think that's huge for their development. You know, the more you could play up and things like that. But we, yeah, so that's kind of my two cents. Yeah. All right. So, Santiago, let's get to now, you know, the fact that there's, I don't want, I wouldn't say a blank canvas. I'm assuming you know, the MLS obviously have some stuff drawn down on what they would like to see. But in your opinion, um, as a coach uh, at that level, being in the environment that you are in, uh, which is New Jersey, New, York, New Jersey is huge. Um, and then, you know, so you got you got Philly, you got a couple of good clubs in New Jersey. Then you got Philly. Uh, then you have the Red Bulls. You have the NYCs. You have the Med Ovals, MSC in, in, in New York, et cetera, et cetera. What type of model would you like to see um, for these players? Like, how, how does it look like? Do you prefer uh, just uh, sort of adding to the, the previous DA model? Do you think that we should go back into the sort of like the ODP model uh, that happened uh, back before? Because I heard a lot of coaches say that's what we should do. We should just go back to the, the ODP model of the early 20s and the 90s because that way it was better. What do you think of what would you like to see the model that uh, MLS takes for this, uh, for this, uh, for this youth league? Yeah, uh, I think competition is the driver of of good soccer. Uh, so if we base the structure around making it competitive, I think we can be successful in, in developing the types of players that we want to develop. I think, you know, when you're faced with problems of, of how to compete, and I think Cedar Stars, where I'm at, has allowed me to see how much you can do uh, and how much you can compete with, you know, we have probably what are the two most successful academies right on our doorstep on a national level uh, with Red Bulls and NYCFC, you know, 20 minutes in, in different directions from us. Uh, and we continue to compete with them. Uh, and that's, that's looked, you know, against Red Bulls. It's been uh, just, just uh, above a 500 record. You know, from U13 all the way to, to U19 over the past six years, uh, we've beat them more times than, than they've beat us. And uh, against NYCFC, it's been just shy of 500 since they since you know since NYC uh, FC uh, was created in, in terms of their academy. So what you start to realize is that when you have you know a platform to compete against these guys, you then figure out ways to to compete against them. You know, without compromising your identity as a club and, and your philosophy and the way you want the game to be played. So, you know, for us, that looks like recruiting more and and uh, uh, not recruiting in the sense of, uh, you know, uh, I, I want to get a whole new team in, but being, you know, clinical about we need a player in this position that not necessarily the, the player that's, you know, the that has the best overall game but just a player that fits the mold here you know so and and that as we do that then you know the game grows and now we have a really really competitive club here that continues to to produce players so i think as we you know that was just kind of prefacing what what i was going to say here in terms of the mls league i think there has to be tiers and there has to be competition so you can't have uh, an MLS team turn up to play 
uh, a non-MLS team and you know spank them eight to zero at uh, at U15. You know, uh, can it happen when they're when kids are younger? Yes. You know, I I don't see anything bad from from kids you know winning by large margins when they're younger because you you it's going to happen because you want to play games locally and sometimes that happens you know and then obviously so, so what you're saying is you you want some type of pro- promotion relegation depending on how um uh how how the the team's record of that of that season yeah i, I think it's not as straightforward as as a top flight promotion relegation it's not that straightforward because there's a lot of other factors that have to be involved. I think, you know, at youth level, uh, in terms of, you know, the level of coaching, the resources at the club, there has to be standards in terms of what players are getting provided. You can't throw a team that won, say they won, the, there's two flights and they won the second flight, but, you know, they don't have uh, their own turf field or their own, uh, you know, grass uh, top level field to host games, you know, then you, they can't, there has to be a certain standard for them to move up, you know, but if they've shown through results that they're developing players, I think it's only natural for, for those clubs to be incentivized to then be able to play at the highest level. And to be honest with you, I think that that has to, to be come from, from the, you know, from Every single level. It can't. It can't just be, you know, the MLS league is is shielded from all these other clubs that we have on a, on, on a local basis. You know, here since we have twenty three million people in the in the tri state area, uh, you know, twenty three million people means there's a lot of good players that are not playing in the DA or the, right. you know, the former DA. Yeah. So, yeah. how can we do a better job of identifying these kids? At yeah. 13 years old, you're going to get a kid that's not in the DA that has the potential to be a player. So missing out on those players, I think, is something that that we have. We now have the resources to to give every single player that has the ability the the chance to play at the highest level. So I'll give you an example. Like there's a club in in Newark, New Jersey, Ironbound Soccer Club. I'm sure you've you've heard of. Of course, them. I do. Yes. So uh, it's a very local club but they do a really good job of of, of uh developing really? uh, good good players you know so so a club like that that maybe with a little bit of a little bit of you know you don't want to take away what's special from there they have a lot of you know volunteers uh in, in their coaching staff uh you know, they have uh now they have a relationship with the red bulls where the red bulls are providing a certain level of uh, you know technical guidance there uh but even a club like that if they're competing with with if they can turn up and compete against against uh, say at Cedar Stars, which you know at the moment maybe they don't have the resources quite to compete, but if they are competing, then why not, why shouldn't they be allowed to to compete? So you know, right. one of the things that they've they've talked about is is a cup competition where maybe you take clubs from all over you know the region and then it kind of builds into a competition with the clubs at the highest level. So then you can potentially have these, you know, I guess Cinderella stories where where a club that's you know with less resources goes and competes, but you know beyond the what that can do for the game on a on a cultural level, I think what you know in terms of player identification that can be amazing for the for the country. Yeah, definitely. Let me, Arvin, Santiago. Yeah, I had a question. So, 
I what I don't understand is why don't MLS youth teams play up a year? I never understood that. Like if if, if you literally have the best players in your market, you're obviously going to win. So why not play up a year and challenge them? I, I I don't. And then you have the U19 just play with the USL team and and push yeah, them right. that way. I don't understand yeah, why that's, that's, that's something that. that's been talked about. That's definitely something that's okay. been talked about in terms of uh, MLS teams playing their players up. I think the, the no the team up. There. I'm saying I'm saying the, the team, team up. Like say oh, the no, entire that's, team. Yeah, that's what. I, yeah, no, that's that's what I was saying. Sorry, I, I misspoke okay. there. Uh, okay. Playing the whole team up. I think the hesitation is where if you have a you know you're going to have kids that are that are capable of playing up, right? But there's always going to be that special player that is not physically prepared to play at, against older kids. And, you know, maybe at 15, 16, even there, it can make an impact. There's kids that have 15s, you know, you can have, and, and MLS teams like are more able to keep these type of kids where I know this kid's a special player. He's 15. He's not quite able to compete against, you know, the 17s, but, but, in in a year's time, he's going to be able to. So then, what do you do with a kid like that? Do do you then play him down with the old with the with the younger kids, and then play him against teams his own age? Do you understand what I'm saying in terms of the predicament there? Yeah. Where my- Look, I- go ahead. Keep going. No, no, no. So, so I think the the easiest way to resolve that issue in terms of yes, play your whole team up. All you have to do is is just play all the younger kids in in the in the older division. I don't think any anybody can prevent you from doing that, you know, like if MLS teams want to do that, uh I don't think that you have to enter the the younger team and say, "Okay, the 15s are playing in the 17s league." I don't think that's necessary. I think if if you want to do it, all you have to do is take the younger kids and put them in the older team's roster. If that makes sense. Mm. Yeah, no, it does. And the only reason I, I ask is so when I was in France, I was with Lyon for about six months. And uh, I don't know if it was if it was a reality for the whole like all the big time uh, academies, but at least for Lyon, all their age groups. They, so their girls actually played boys in boys leagues till they were U15. And then the boys uh, in the Lyon Academy always played up. And it was interesting because Lyon is actually I think they're power five of of developing players that play in the top five leagues in, in the in the world like they're they, they just constantly develop and i notice how they are constantly like if they have a really good u15 player they're playing on the 17s and that 17 team is maybe playing against the u18 in that regional league uh then they have u18s that are playing on their they called it cfa which is like the division four and you're playing against other professional professional teams and they're and they're they're their CFA team, literally no one is over 21 and you're playing against 34 year olds, 31. And I just, I feel we miss, we miss the mark in this country to challenge our players more when it comes to playing up. And I understand each, each team can kind of play up a player, uh, you know, and, and do that individually. I just, I think, and I'm, I'm always guilty of it as well is, is like, we care some, sometimes so much about kind of winning or in that conference. And I just feel like uh, we don't challenge them enough in that, in that respect. No, no, I completely understand. I mean, my, uh, my just my brother doing his masters at the Cruyff Institute, and AX is the sort of like the the guinea pig. You know, was telling me about it all the all the. Right. 
Or have I lost you there? Can you hear me? Yes, Everybody, I can hear you. Yeah. Okay, yeah. There we go. Are you there? You were saying your brother? Yeah, so we were saying uh, as as he, um, um, you know, doing the Masters in, 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 in the Netherlands and um, at Ajax, they play the top academy players. So if you're playing on the, like the U14 team and you're one of the top players um, at that, they're automatically you go up into the older teams, automatically. And they, they always do that. They always push the, the, the younger players that are excelling at their sort of like the age group to, um, to, to play up. Um, so I think it's very common in, uh, in Europe. I just think in, in the United States, again, you can disagree. I think we're still a little bit, being so young, we're still more attracted to the winning part uh, of, of, um, you know, of the game more than the development part of the game. And maybe that's one of the reasons why that doesn't happen. Um, but gentlemen, thank you so much for uh, enjoying uh, joining me for this episode. I mean, we can you know we can go on for another hour or so, but uh, I thank you guys for your time, and I think you guys gave a lot of insights, and a lot of people will understand more exactly how um, how to uh, you know what's expected out of the youth team, especially a lot of parents who have players that are you know at that level. Uh, you know, you could sort of give them a little bit of a guidance to where they're going to go and what's out there for them to explore and you know, continue the journey to becoming a pro player. So, gentlemen, I thank you, Fabrice and uh, Santiago. I really thank you for your time. Thank you, Hervé. Nice meeting you, Santiago. It was a pleasure. Fabrice, absolute pleasure, Hervé. Thank, thank you for having me. Uh, you know, the hour flew by, so. Yeah, yeah. definitely. <laughs> All right, guys, thank you for joining us for this episode. Um, this is Youth Soccer, the Elite Level on the VAR Booth Podcast. Thank you for listening to the VAR Booth Podcast. If you like this episode, please rate it. Subscribe to our podcast and comment your thoughts on the topic.